You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, The Baby is in the Mail. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And today's question of the day deals with musical acts and the legendary television show, Saturday Night Live. Now, the show has featured some of the best musicians, and many of them were at the peak of their careers when they appeared on the show. But if you're incredibly lucky, you can get on the show before ever scoring a recording contract. So my question for you today is, can you name the first unsigned act to ever perform on Saturday Night Live? And I should mention that every one of the acts also had a father who was incredibly famous. Now, here are your choices in alphabetical order. Was the first unsigned act, one, Natalie Cole, the daughter of Nat King Cole, or two, Miley Cyrus, the daughter of Billy Ray Cyrus, or three, Enrique Iglesias, the son of Julio Iglesias, or four, Nelson, and that's Ricky Nelson's twin sons, Matthew and Gunnar Nelson, or five, The Wallflowers, and that's the band led by Bob Dylan's son, Jacob. Again, which was the first unsigned musical act to perform on Saturday Night Live? Was it 1. Natalie Cole, 2. Miley Cyrus, 3. Enrique Iglesias, 4. The Nelsons, or 5. The Wallflowers? And as always, I'll let you mull over these choices for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that's titled, The Baby is in the Mail. And this story begins on January 1st of 1913. That is the date that the United States Postal Service started domestic parcel post service. Prior to this date, if you wanted to mail anything, say, larger than a letter to someone living in the United States, you would have to use one of the many private express companies that existed, but that was extremely expensive. While the new parcel post service certainly was cheaper, it did have some limits. First of all, one could not send a package that weighed over 11 pounds, that's about 5 kilograms, and a combined length and girth of 72 inches, or 1.8 meters. Second, whiskey, guns, dynamite, turpentine, matches, kerosene, benzene, and rubbing alcohol were all forbidden, and that's for obvious reasons. Of course, in putting together the rules for this new means of shipping, the Postal Service was unable to anticipate, you know, every type of item that people would like to mail. And history is full of mailed items that people should have never, ever sent in the first place. 
So here's a short list of some of the oddest things that have ever been mailed. Pieces of the Titanic's hull, an 11,000-pound Sikorsky Black Hawk helicopter, animal blood, dead sharks, live frogs, worms, snakes, penguins, an alligator, a live rhinoceros, and believe it or not, human babies. Yes, you heard that right. Human babies were sent by parcel post. Now, before I discuss the how and when of human babies being shipped via the Postal Service, I should point out that it was never, ever allowed from day one to begin with. The only live animals permitted to be shipped via parcel post at this time were bees, and that's queen bees to be exact. Yet, the question of shipping babies via parcel post popped up almost immediately. Just 17 days after its inauguration, Postmaster General Frank H. Hitchcock responded to inquiries regarding the shipment of human babies through the mail. While no new regulation was passed at this time, he felt that since babies did not fall into the category of live bees or bugs, they could not be shipped. It was just obvious. Now, when I mentioned this story to somebody the other day, she asked me why in the world would anyone consider mailing a baby in the first place? Well, there were two good reasons. First, it was a lot cheaper than buying a railroad ticket. Actually, you probably had to buy three tickets. That was one for the child and two for the person that would accompany the child to his destination and then for that person to return home. Now, the second reason may come as a bit of a surprise based on today's reputation of the United States Postal Service. Believe it or not, they were a lot gentler with their packages than the carrier services were back in the day. The earliest record I could find of a baby being mailed in the United States occurred on January 25th of 1913. That was just nine days after the Postmaster General said that it was not allowed. It seems a mail carrier named Vernon O'Lytle picked the baby up from the residence of his parents. That was Mr. and Mrs. Jesse Beagle of Glen Estee, Ohio, and they delivered the so-called package to the grandmother. That was Mrs. Lewis Beagle, who lived about one mile away. The boy weighed in at 10 and 3 quarter pounds, which was just under the 11 pound weight limit. Postage cost the Beagles 15 cents, and the boy was insured for $50. Just two days later, another baby was shipped. This time it was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. J.W. Savis of Pine Hollow, Pennsylvania. She was delivered by a rural mail carrier named James Byerly to relatives in Clay Hollow. Next, the New York Times reported on February 23rd of that same exact year that a woman walked into a New York City post office and she wanted her mail her five-day-old baby to a relative named Becky Rickowitz in Southern California. The clerk placed the baby on a scale and it weighed in at 10 and one-quarter pounds, again just under the weight limit, but upon more careful inspection, notice that the mailing label lacked a city. The woman said it was being mailed to grass trees, but by that point the regulations had been checked and the woman was told that they could not mail her baby. She left the post office dejected. She was quoted as saying, don't die baby, don't die. On August 20th, Mrs. D. Beauchamp of Lodi, California, tried to mail a baby to the home of Mrs. G. Sandheim, a neighbor who was about two miles away. 
Mrs. Boshin's postman, uh, David Beardsley, had been notified of the delivery six days earlier, and he didn't know if the baby could be shipped or not. So to play it safe, he checked with the local postmaster, who informed Beardsley that it was against the rules to mail livestock. And since a baby was technically classified as livestock, he had to tell Mrs. Beauchamp that she could not mail her baby. Then, one year after parcel post service was started in the United States, the weight limits on the packages was raised up to 50 pounds within postal zones 1 and 2 and to 20 pounds for all the other zones. Now, you know what this means. You guessed it. People would try to send bigger children. There was a story in the February 4th issue of the New York Times that told of a two-year-old boy that was successfully mailed via parcel post from his grandmother in Stratford, Oklahoma, to an aunt named Mrs. E.H. Stanley in Wellington, Kansas. Her nephew had a tag around his neck with 18 cents of postage affixed, and it was reported that he had first traveled 25 miles to get to the railroad, and then he rode the line with the mail clerks to his final destination. Now, while that baby may have gotten through, the next one was not so lucky. That's because the postmaster of Stratford, Oklahoma, a guy named G.W. Merrill, finally forced the post office to issue an official ruling on this matter. You see, it was reported that a man named J.B. Denton wished to send a two-year-old child from Twin Falls, Idaho, to Stratford. And Merrill could find nothing in the rules and regulations of the postal system that said children could not be shipped. So his question reached the desk of the second assistant postmaster general, and then it grabbed the attention of the head honchos there. And they finally issued an official ruling that no living animal, including human beings, uh, could be sent through the mail via parcel post. They allowed for just one exception. And you guessed it, queen bees. As some would say, rules are meant to be broken, and there's no exception here. And in this case, it was an unnamed 14-pound uh, baby that made its way from Grandma's house in Clear Spring to Mom's house in Indian Springs, Maryland. Then there was Charlotte Mae Pierstoff. Weighing in at 48.5 pounds, or 22 kilograms, she is the subject of the popular children's book Mailing May by Michael O'Tunnell. And she's perhaps the most famous child ever to have been mailed. Now, many sources claim that she is the only child to have ever been mailed, but that is clearly not the case based on my research. May was three months shy of her sixth birthday on February 19th of 1914 when her parents dropped her off at the post office in Grangeville, Idaho. The conductor of the train was shocked when he entered the mail car to find May with 53 cents worth of postage attached to her coat. She traveled the remainder of the trip in that car, and she was finally delivered to her grandmother, and I hope I pronounce this right, Mrs. Vinegarholz in Lewiston, Idaho. Now, if you'd like to make a trip there yourself, her grandparents lived at 1156 12th Avenue, which was a total distance of about 73 miles, or 117 kilometers from her home. Then, one year later, in March of 1915, Six-year-old Edna Neff was mailed from her mother's home in Pensacola, Florida, to her father's in Christianburg, Virginia. For just 15 cents worth of postage, Edna completed the journey and gained the honor of the longest distance that a child was ever mailed via parcel post.
Now, these baby deliveries were reported periodically over the next few years, but the Postal Service kept reminding the public that it was illegal to do so. The last story I could find from this time period was dated June 10th of 1918, and that's when Mrs. W.C. Henderson of Mountain Creek, Alabama, had a baby delivered by mail to her residence. The last case I will mention is from August 18th of 1934. By this time, the mailing of babies had come to a complete halt, but the Postal Service made an exception in this case. You see, there had been about 200 non-union men working for about a week inside the Aluminum Company of America's plant, you know, Alcoa, in where else but Alcoa, Tennessee. Um, and due to a big strike there, these men could not get out, nor could anyone get in to see them. And the picketers outside the plant wouldn't let anyone or anything through the line. But there was one exception. That was the U.S. mail. And as a result, wives mailed packages of food and clothing to their husbands who were stuck inside the facility. So the wives of John Hood and James Hedge came up with a brilliant idea. Since the mail could get through unharmed, why not mail their children to the fathers for a brief visit? Postmaster Ben Inzer felt that, you know, there'd be no harm in doing this, provided that the children were stamped and addressed in the proper manner. And that's exactly what they did. Big tags, make that really, really big tags, each stood more than half the height of the child, were tied around their necks, and the two children were successfully delivered. After a two-hour visit with their dads, the parcels, I mean the children, were mailed back home. So the next time you'd like to send your child on a long trip, you know, just drop them off at the local post office and see what the postmaster has to say. My guess is that he or she will not be checking the regulation books this time. Instead, somebody will probably be on the phone trying to contact child services, you know, with the intent of filing a complaint of neglect or abuse. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. One of the nicest ways I know of to start off a pleasant evening is dinner at the Pindall. Try it. The Pindall Hotel. It's a lovely place. The food is delicious, the service is unexcelled, and the price is most reasonable. The Pendor is two miles south of Alexandria on U.S. Route Number 1, the Richmond Highway. Just about half a mile this side of Beacon Airport. Go out there and try those dinners, luncheons, and breakfasts. You love them. 
the Pendor, P-E-N-N hyphen D-A-W. It is a lovely place. That commercial for the Pendor Motor Hotel was broadcast on WJSV in Arlington, Virginia on September 21st of 1939. When the Pendaw opened in 1927, it was the first motor court hotel on the east coast of the United States. Alexandria building contractor Samuel Cooper Dawson, he joined up with Detroit hotel operator Edward Pinnell to build the original two-building, eight-room motel. Its unusual name came from the first syllable of each man's last name, Penn from Pinnell and Daw from Dawson. Just two years after opening, the Pendaw was expanded to six buildings, each of which was named for a state along the East Coast. The entire place was remodeled in 1940, during which time its restaurant was expanded. The cost to stay at the motel at this time ranged between $1.25 and $2 per day. That would range from about $20 to $32 in today's money. Now, for that price, each room included a private bath and a garage to park your car in. The motel was last remodeled in the mid-1950s. The completion of Interstate 95, which is about a mile and a half away, ultimately caused the Pendaw to close its doors in 1973. The land, which is located at 6300 Richmond Highway in Alexandria, was sold off and is now the location of three businesses. That's a Wells Fargo Bank branch, Jerry's Subs and Pizzas, and an Applebee's restaurant. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. Now, I'm betting that Friday, June 19th of 1959 is a day that Mr. and Mrs. Jens Peter Lund will never forget. It all started at 8.37 p.m. when pregnant Mrs. Lund said, It's time! And just two minutes later, they were in the car and on the way to the hospital. But they didn't get there in time. Just 13 minutes later, at 8.50 p.m., their 7-pound, 9-ounce baby boy was born in the car. Nine minutes later, the Lunds finally arrived at their destination. But in his excitement, Mr. Lund mistook a plate glass window for the entrance to the hospital. Next thing you know, he was being treated for cuts to his arm and nose. Our next story goes into the you-have-got-to-be-kidding lawsuits category. It seems that brothers Frank and Joseph Gato were severely wounded in a gun battle, which erupted when they broke into patrolman Gregory Scorsofave's home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The bullet was removed from Frank's stomach by Dr. William Gates on February 28th of 1959. That bullet was then used as evidence against Frank in court. So he was convicted and sentenced to a 13 to 37 year term in the slammer. The lawsuit filed by Frank's wife claimed that the removal of the bullet by the surgeon was quote, illegal search and seizure, and saw $250,000 in damages. That's nearly $2 million adjusted for inflation. Since they're claiming that the removal of the bullet was illegal, I guess that implies that the hospital should just simply left Frank bleeding to death on the ground near the hospital where he was found. And our last story for today occurred on January 4th of 1961 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
Here we find one 69-year-old man named Frank Hill stopping his car to let his mother-in-law, that's 85-year-old Nitty Saxon, out of the vehicle. Upon opening his door, her hat was grabbed by the wind and it flew away. So Frank ran down the street after the hat, leaving the car engine running. Mrs. Saxon slid across the seat to help get the hat, but in doing so she accidentally pressed the gas pedal, so the car jumped the curb and raked along a number of storefronts. And in doing so, a 66-year-old pedestrian named Frank Curtis was thrown through a large store window. The car came to a rest after traveling about 150 feet, that's about 50 meters. Mrs. Saxon, who had never learned to drive, was shaken by the whole incident. As for the crash victim, Frank Curtis, he was taken to the hospital, treated for cuts to his hands and scalp, and then he was released. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked who was the first unsigned musical act to perform on Saturday Night Live. And your choices were one, Natalie Cole, who's the daughter of Nat King Cole, two, Miley Cyrus, the daughter of Billy Ray Cyrus, three, Enrique Iglesias, who's the son of Julio Iglesias, four, Nelson, that's Ricky, Ricky Nelson's twin sons, Matthew and Gunner, or five, The Wallflowers, which is the band led by Bob Dylan's son, Jacob Dylan. Well, the answer was choice number four, the band Nelson. They played on Saturday Night Live on February 8th of 1986, which was just 40 days after the famous father Ricky had been killed in a New Year's Eve plane crash. Now, one could argue that it was the combination of the sudden death, coupled with the fact that their dad had hosted the show back in 1979, that got them on. But I'll leave that for history to decide. Music was definitely handed down from generation to generation in this family. Granddad Ozzie Nelson of Ozzie and Harriet fame hit number one way back in 1935 with the song And Then Some. Ozzie's son Ricky repeated the feat in 1958 with a song that he truly despised, Poor Little Fool. Well, whether he liked it or not, that song sold over 2 million copies and became the first number one hit ever on Billboard's then newly launched Hot 100 chart. Ricky Nelson was quite the sensation in his day. He sold over 200 million singles and 60 million albums. Lastly, the Nelson brothers did finally land a recording contract and they hit it big in 1990 with their album After the Rain. It sold over 3 million copies and I have to admit that I did purchase one myself. The song Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection, the first single off that album, also topped the singles charts. That makes the Nelsons the only family to have a number one single over three generations. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the Parcel Post Babies and all of the other segments that went along with that. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. As always, I'll place supporting documents for this podcast up on my Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com slash uselessinformationpodcast. That's all one word, uselessinformationpodcast. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. 
Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.